Tessa, I don't know how many Fast and Furious podcasts are out there, but we have to have made the top 10. Oh, I'm definitely a 10. This is the Nine Days of Fast and Furious. Welcome to the Nine Days of Fast and Furious, Monkey Off My Backlog's first limited series. I'm your host, Sam Morris, and with me is Tessa Suela. Today, we are discussing the eighth film in the franchise, the ominous sounding, The Fate of the Furious. But before we get started, Tessa, holiday spirit, what you got? Not a lot today. Uh, Today is the end of the semester. Uh, I'm saving all of my good stuff for tomorrow when we finish this Nine Days of Fast and Furious. But I do have my penguin holiday socks on. Little penguin saying jingle all the way. Always makes me smile. And I have a cup of my favorite holiday tea here. So doing okay. Doing okay. But let's get to what everyone's really wanting to hear about. Our podcast within a podcast, Sam's Holiday Cocktail. Do, 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 do. Sam, did you make a holiday cocktail today? I think you know that I did not. However, I made a cocktail in honor of the franchise's visit to Cuba. We are talking about a daiquiri, but not just any daiquiri, the Hemingway daiquiri. So we're we're doing a little Florida-Cuba mashup today. And so what you do is you take two ounces of light rum. I used Havana Club. For this particular recipe, you take two ounces, you throw it in with three-fourths of an ounce of lime juice, you put in a fourth of an ounce of maraschino liqueur. Now, you can use, you can use Luxardo maraschino liqueur, or if you're like me, you can throw in cherry herring. And then, the fourth ingredient is an ounce of grapefruit cordial. Of course, this segment is not brought to you by Lieber and Company, but this is their recipe and I am using their Rio Red Grapefruit Cordial. You put all these things in a shaker. You heard me say it used citrus earlier with the lime juice, so that means you've got to shake it up. You shake it, and then you pour it into a glass. No garnish. Good to go. It is delicious. This has been the podcast within a podcast, Sam's Holiday Cocktail. You know, Sam, I just realized something. We've been asking all our guests to talk about their favorite holiday movies, but we have as yet to talk about ours, and we have a guest tomorrow, so we might as well talk about them on today's episode. Sam, top three Christmas movies of all time. Go. Top three. Number three, Die Hard. Number two, It's a Wonderful Life. Number one, Love Actually. You watch Love Actually every year, don't you? I do. Feel it in my fingers, and I feel it in my toes. Christmas is all around me. Come on and let it snow. That's right. What holiday movies do you plan on watching this year? Well, we're not actually watching the first Die Hard movie this year because Die Hard with a Vengeance is a part of our movie marathon coming up, but we will be watching It's a Wonderful Life and Love Actually as we do every year. We're also going to put into the rotation because we had a terrible movie theater experience. Remember movie theaters? We had a terrible movie theater experience seeing last Christmas. We had, I'm just going to say it, we talk about kids these days with their cell phone screens and their lack of respect and their blah, blah, blah. Those were not the people who ruined our movie theater experience. For the first time in my 40 plus years, I asked for a refund because some people who were much older than us could not stop talking. 
during the movie. We are excited to see Henry Golding and Mother of Dragons herself, Amelia Clark, without any interruption. And the music of George Michael, of course. I was so mad. Like, I don't think I've ever been that mad in a movie theater watching that movie. I loved that movie, and I'm excited to see it again and see if it holds up as well as it did. But I was so angry at all of the, I'm just going to say it, and I'm going to out myself as a millennial when I say it, all the boomers just talking and talking throughout that movie. And one lady was, like, shouting, like, spoilers at, at the top of her lungs. Like, it was bad. Anyway, my top three holiday movies. In no particular order. The Holiday, It's a Wonderful Life, Love Actually. Oh. So not not too far off from yours. Really, really quickly, to go back to never having been as angry as you were in the theater, I just want to ask, were you as angry as the time The Force Awakens broke when you were going to see it? Did that make you angry? That actually didn't make me angry because I was sitting in really, really terrible seats. Like, we had gotten there late, and this was before... I, I mean, I guess there are probably still theaters out there that don't do numbered seating, but this was before, this was really the last year before the theaters where I am started doing like ticket sales to a specific seat. So we got there kind of late and we ended up having to sit like on the edge in the very front section of seats. So it was not an ideal movie going experience. Like it was kind of hard to like see everything. The screen was too close. We had to crane our necks, all of that stuff. And so The Force Awakens, the the real broke right before Han Solo dies. Sorry if that's a, a spoiler for some people, but right before Han Solo dies, the real broke. And so we were all sitting there and somebody got the people and they were trying to figure it out. And they were like, oh, well, it broke, but theater one just finished emptying out. So we can just rewind it a few minutes and watch from there. My friend was gone from that theater so fast to find better seats. It was ridiculous. She ran into theater one and just threw herself across three seats. It was awesome. I was still wasn't angry, though, because you know what? That happens. I understand that. I don't understand a bunch of entitled elderly people yelling spoilers at the top of their lungs and getting drunk and talking to each other during a movie-going experience. Like, go to a bar. Go to a bar. All right, let's get on to the main event. Sam, could you give us your best summary of the last of the flagship Fast and Furious films, The Fate of the Furious? The last one until, of course, it isn't the last one anymore. The last time I summarized one of these films, I did so by saying there are two easy ways to summarize it. There are for this one as well. The first way to summarize it is it's the Fast and Furious, the Winter Soldier. If you've seen the Winter Soldier, pretty much that. As for what actually happens in the movie, here we go. We start off, a honeymoon in Cuba? All right, good times. Everybody's having a good time. But wait, is that Charlize Theron? It is, and she's a bad guy, and she's telling Dom he's going to do something bad. Why? We don't know. Cut to Hobbs being the best soccer coach ever. That's a big dad of the year energy right there. Of course, the suit comes over, and they have to do a thing, and it's going to be an illegal thing, so we better not screw it up. That's like the stupidest part of this entire movie. That is, I, I, I have given this series so much latitude for its plot holes. This is stupid. But basically, it's an excuse for Hobbs to get the gang back together. But surprise, Dom goes rogue. Probably because of the thing Charlize Theron told him. But bottom line, Hobbs gets sent to prison because this mission failed. Which means, the nice thing is, we get prison break. Hobbs and Shaw edition. 
if you're wondering, what does Charlize Theron have on Dom? Well, first of all, her name's Cypher. So what does Cypher have on Dom? Oh, boy. She has a boy on him. That's right. Elena and Dom had a baby. Oh, baby. What are we going to do about that? Well, we're going we're gonna to do a thing. We're going to have the team go up against each other. But Dom's thinking two steps ahead. Dom has gone to a very unlikely source for help. Shaw's mom, played by Helen Mirren. In this whole sequence where Cypher controls a bunch of cars, Letty escapes. And because Dom lets Letty escape, we're going to have to say goodbye to Elena, who is murdered. That's right. Bridging! Now, that sets up the final scene. The best, most Bond sequence ever not in a Bond movie. It's in Russia. There are nukes involved. All right, so we're doing a lot of driving on ice. We're doing a lot of antics. Meanwhile, Shaw's mom has enlisted Shaw and brother. So brothers are back together. And so we have a great scene on the airplane. While everybody else is down on the ice, the Shaw brothers are on the airplane. Specifically, Jason Statham is the pacifier. And so when he confronts Cypher, she manages to escape out of the plane. So this movie could be called The Fate of the Furiosa. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, I know what's going to happen. They're going to name that kid Brian. Were they going to name that kid anything but Brian? The baby's name is Brian. Hooray! I like that you managed to get all of the main plot points of the film without like filling in any details at all. So let's let's start with the obvious. So again, as I have mentioned several times with Letty's storyline, we get another telenovela move with the baby because there was just no way that they could get Dom to turn rogue without threatening someone. And they've already clearly written Brian and his family off of this particular series because of Paul Walker's death. So they couldn't really rely on that as a well anymore. And so they have this whole relationship with Elena result in a baby she didn't know she was pregnant and she was going to tell him but then all this stuff happened so we get this baby what do we think about this what do we think about the telenovela the continuation of that sort of plot beat i really enjoy how we were talking about during the movie is this going to be a co-parenting situation because you know what's really great about this series is that it gives us the model of family chosen family shared family non-nuclear family any movie franchise was going to pull the lift of having Letty, Elena, Dom, as well as, God help them keep Roman away, but, but Tedge and Hobbs, you know, together to raise this child, this franchise would have been it. But n- no, we're not going to do that. Let's just, let's just make with the fridging. So, you know, the telenovela thing, totally worked for me. I just think they they really biffed it there. I, I get what they were trying to do. They were trying to give Charlize Theron's character Cypher, and we'll talk about her in a little bit. We're, they were trying to give her teeth, right? They were trying to make this more perilous, but I, I just felt like it was unnecessary to kill Elena. Like, I still feel like that character had a lot to give us. Like, they could have really explored co-parenting. They could have explored some of these other issues. I, I don't know if it was completely necessary to fridge her in this way. Uh, but until it was the big reveal of the baby, which happens, I think, about a third of the way into the movie. But one of the things that, that bothered both of us, I think, as we were watching this, is that the, ba- the baby reveal doesn't happen until the, like a third of the way into the movie. 
So both of us were really uncomfortable with this apparent rogue turn of Dom without any explanation, really. Until, of course, we learn that it's because she's holding the baby hostage. Does this undermine the characterization of Dom? Because Dom has really been played as a white knight so far. In a lot of ways, he's the good guy. He's the, he's the criminal Robin Hood type character. He's the working class Bond. What, what does this do for this character to have him play against his team? I don't think it actually undermines Dom's character at all. You get to the end of the movie and, and Letty... We talked about, is Letty going to punch him? And she never punches him. There's never really any repercussions for what he did. And that's what the main fault of this whole narrative thing is, is you are either committed to the idea that Dom is committed to the idea of family, or you aren't. And so if you're watching this movie with any kind of metacognition going on at all, you know Dom's got a good reason to betray his family. There has to be a good reason. I think it's good setting up suspense knowing what it is. The thing that breaks this is that all that squad, all they should have said the whole time is, there's something going on, there's something going on, there's something going on, there's something going on. Forget giving him meaningful looks in the sequence where they go up against each other in the streets of New York. Ask him what's going on. Shout at him. The, the thing that really happens in this movie that's bad characterization-wise is the way literally everyone else reacts to this. Because everyone should have known, just like we do, Dom is not a person who goes bad. It's not in him at all. The thing about Dom going bad is it's really a, a plot contrivance in a lot of ways. Like, we have to move some pieces because perhaps Fast 7 or Furious 7 really got off the rails from what they wanted to do because they wanted to give they wanted to give Paul Walker a good ending and I stand by that. So they had to do some shuffling in this to get things where they wanted to go. So turning Dom bad if that wasn't their original plan was a good way to do this. But it gave us something that is just oh wow. Tessa, I'm I'm not even going to tease it for you. You said it. What is it? So this actually reminded me quite a bit of comic book narratives where when they would want two superpowered characters to fight each other, they would often use this sort of like narrative ploy where one of them was under mind control or was poisoned or was from a different universe. Anything to get like Thor to fight Wolverine, right? Like you, you want to see those two characters in a death match. And so you got to figure out some way to turn one of them bad without actually turning them bad because we don't want to lose our, our superhero at all. That, that's what this really reminded me of. And this was underscored by the fact that there is a sequence where after, I, I know I just keep thinking of her as Furiosa, but her name is actually Cypher in this. After Cypher traps a Russian diplomat with nuclear codes under a pile, a pile of cars, just like traps him in New York City under a pile of cars. Dom climbs over the cars to get these nuclear codes from him in what only can be described as a deathstroke suit. Like, it looks exactly like the comic books. He's got, like, the mask. He's got, like, the armor, like, the, the bulletproof, like, vest and everything. All he's missing is that orange paint on one side, and he would be deathstroke. So I think this is probably a good time to ask, then, because we have a couple of new additions in the movie. What did you think about Cypher? You know, I'm a Charlize Theron stan. 
you you know this about me. I I love Charlize Theron. I I even love her in terrible movies like Aeon Flux. Like she is just such a great performer to watch. I like the idea that she's like the Blofeld of the series. Like I think we finally reached the Blofeld. We talked a little bit about how the villain of four is actually working for the villain of of six and you know all that kind of thing but she's she actually represents the the head of the specter organization right like she is the big bad in charge i like that she pulls a blowfeld at the end where she parachutes out of the the plane so we're going to see her again she has such a just like great commanding presence and she manages to infuse personality into this villain that being said <laughs> this villain is inconsistent in her messaging she keeps talking about things like fate and she'll tell Dom things like, you know, have you ever heard about choice theory? You know, the, the rule number one of choice theory is that you only control your own actions. But then she'll tell him that he has no control. Like, I, I don't understand what this villain's message is exactly. Like, she's supposed to be anti-family, but she understands why he's invested in family. Like, I, I don't know. I, she just seems like more of a plot point, a really well-dressed up plot point to me in some ways. And knowing that she's going to show up at least in the next film, you know, even if she's a plot point, not unlike Blofeld in the original Bond films, by the way, Blofeld was a great idea, but they didn't execute him very well in the films. This is this is great to me. Like, even if they're not going to do a very good job with her, at least that's, as you say, Charlize Theron on my screen a lot more. So I'm happy with that. Did you feel a little bit better about, I feel so bad for asking you this way. Do you feel a little bit better about the other new character, Mr. Mr. Baby Eastwood's character, Little Nobody Rules? Uh, okay, what is a better name? I need Twitter or someone to answer this for me. Is Little Nobody better or is Rules better as a nickname? I don't even know what this guy's name is. Like, that's how much I wasn't paying attention to this character. It does. The answer is, Twitter, it doesn't matter. He's terrible. Yeah, I don't know if this was supposed to be a replacement Brian character, which, by the way, no one can replace Brian. I'm sorry. Especially this guy. Especially this guy. I did enjoy the humor where he just doesn't understand how this gang works, and so he keeps getting ripped on by everybody because he keeps saying the wrong thing. So I guess he works as a foil, but I'm not sold that he's like an integral part of this team. All right, so speaking of people who aren't that funny and aren't that interesting, has Roman outstayed his welcome? This was a question that I had while watching this film because Roman is not my favorite character of this franchise. Like, I feel like his humor is usually pretty cheap. I, I feel like he's over, over the top in some ways that make me kind of uncomfortable at times. I do enjoy his back and forth with Tej. I do enjoy his back and forth with Dom. I thought he was funnier, though, in this movie than in previous ones. I think mainly because they wrote him some better jokes. Like, I just don't think the I'm hungry thing is a great joke. Like, I just don't. But I enjoyed the whole top 10 gag. Like, the whole, like, oh, you're number 11. And him, like, going off on that. That was pretty funny. I enjoyed the fact that they've embraced that he's, like, the distraction guy now. So when they're racing out of that, that building in Berlin, and he, they're like, Oh, how much of the explosives did you set? And he's like, all of it. And they're like, are you crazy? Like, and he's like, well, you wanted a distraction. Like that, that was all pretty funny. I enjoyed him making fun of little nobody, especially the stuff with the ties and the stuff with talking into your collar. That was all hilarious. But I don't know. Like, it just seems like it's taken a really long time for them to know how to use this character's humor. 
And also Team Tej, by the way, 100%. Here's my other question for you, Sam. There's something that happens in this film that I don't know if I'm completely comfortable with, and that is the redemption question mark of the Shaws. Because the la- literally last movie, Deckard Shaw was the villain. Like, he was the big bad. They beat him up in L.A. And then suddenly, this movie, it's like everybody's forgotten about the whole Justice for Han thing. They've forgotten about all of the bad stuff that he has done and that his brother has done. And they make him just sort of a, a fun foil for Hobbs, which I, I'm excited to watch this next movie now, seeing their interactions with this. And we get to see him like actually play a, a pivotal part in the team. And everyone just seems okay with it. What did you think about that? So I don't know if this is the fault of the writers or the fault of new fast director F. Gary Gray or Vin Diesel or the, any other producer or any of the actors. I don't know who gets the blame for this, but it's like the characters forgot so many things in this movie from continuity. And it just, without giving Justin Lin too much credit, it's like if Justin Lin had been here, would this have been a little different? You should be really upset he killed Han. Shaw killed Han. But as soon as we, watching this movie, and I mean all of us who watched the movie, I hope, but definitely me, the second I found out that Shaw was doing what he did, not because he's a terrible person, not because he's evil, because family, as soon as he plugged into this series' DNA, which is only reinforced by the inclusion of his mom and surprise baby bro comes back actually i don't know if he's baby bro i don't care the point is as soon as shaw plugs into the idea of family we find out he's not evil han's not dead han is not dead i know han is not dead i know what we didn't see is shaw pulling han out of that car i do not care what you tell me i don't know I don't care what happens in the rest of this series. The only way this works, period, is if he pulled Han out of that wreck. And this is another part of the retcon. This is trickery to make us think something. But the second you reveal him to be a good person, there is just no way. What did you think of Helen Mirren as Mama Shaw? I kept thinking about that scene from the 2007 remake of 310 to Yuma, which was a terrible movie, but there's a scene where Russell Crowe's character says, even bad men love their mamas. And I just kept thinking about that as we were watching this. What did you think of Helen Mirren? Helen Mirren's great. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Mama Shaw. What did you think about the Jason Statham, Baby Toretto tag team humor plot line that went on for like the last 20 minutes of the climactic scene what do you want me to say i loved it (laughs) jason statham is such an interesting action star because you you pointed out he's like a 80s throwback action star in some ways and i think that that scene really just confirmed it to me he's done stuff like this in some of his other he's done stuff like this in some of his other action movies where he's played with children or like played against children in some ways And I just, I found this whole scene adorable and charming. It reminded me a lot of the hospital scene in Hard Boiled where the baby pees on the main character. Like there was a lot of that sort of 80s, early 90s kind of humor here, which I appreciated. But yeah, still, it seemed a little jarring that we were just suddenly supposed to accept that Shaw is a good person. 
So the last question I want to ask you before we talk about our overall feelings about this entry into the franchise, car pranks. What do you think about the car pranks? You know, besides the sequence on the ice at the end where they're chasing the submarine uh, who, that's below the ice and they're, they're on the ice and they're being chased by other cars and they're doing car pranks like that, there actually weren't that many car pranks in this film. Did you realize that as we were going through? It became more of an action movie that had cars in it. Like the cars for the middle portion of this movie, like there's a race at the very beginning in Cuba which is supposed to remind us of Dom's roots, right, before he goes rogue. And then there's that climactic action sequence at the end on the ice. But in the middle, cars are just places to, like, the cars are just tools to get us from point A to point B, right? We're we're a lot more interested in Dom fighting people. I guess there is one car prank where Cypher causes all of these empty cars to, she hacks them, or she and her team hack them, and she causes them to cause chaos. Frankly, that was a really boring stunt to me. Like, I don't care about people hacking empty cars and them just sort of rolling all over the place, right? Like, I'm here to watch the showmanship and the expertise of these characters doing really cool things in cars. To me, it just, that one was kind of boring. What did you think of the car pranks in this one? Did they live up to the last one, which had some of the most epic car pranks? No, and this movie is clearly moving away from even further away from the original intent of the series, which is a a movie about street racing. And that's okay, because it's something else now, and the something else is pretty good. But I guess that leads to the big question, which is, do we like this movie? I, I think there were, personally, I think there were a lot of good parts in it. But as you can probably guess from other things I've said already, I think it was a pretty weak entry. I think it's an entry that's meant to get us somewhere else, which it does, and it was entertaining, but it is not up there with the best movies of the series. Tessa? Yeah, I'd have to agree. I don't, I I think there were some really good set pieces. Let's be very clear. I still think that this movie was very enjoyable to watch. It was not a hard way to spend a morning watching this movie. I really enjoyed the set the set pieces they did have with the cars, especially the one at the end. I enjoyed just Hobbs. Hobbs really stepped it up as a character. The Rock did really well, especially in his relationships with his daughter in this particular entry point. The the, the soccer set piece, like just oh my gosh, it was so good. But yeah, overall, I didn't like most of the new characters. I didn't think that the plot really made sense or worked really well. And I'm a little afraid that they're they're drifting a little bit from there. And not not in a Tokyo way, in a in a bad way from their original plot. But yeah, I, I would definitely say this is not this is not their best work. So and of course the one thing that we haven't mentioned in this episode is that at the end, Hobbes quits. Ostensibly to spend more time with his daughter. That's what the scene is supposed to make us believe. It's reinforcing family. But this leads me right into our first fast fact. Bad blood. If you're familiar with the series, you know that there is some bad blood between Dwayne The Rock Johnson and some of the men in the cast. Specifically, I think it's pretty clear, Vin Diesel. I don't really care to take on this other than to say it's there. But there seemed to be a question as to whether or not The Rock will show up in future episodes of Fast and Furious. And perhaps this is a chicken or egg situation, but that has at least something to do with 
the spinoff that we'll be talking about tomorrow, Hobbs and Shaw. So again, without getting into who said what and who posted what on Instagram and what supposedly happened after that, there's definitely some off-screen tension that fortunately I don't think translates into the film. Fast fact number two. Iceland. Taza, did you know that that wasn't really Russia? I mean, I feel like I could have guessed. Did you know that it was Iceland? I did not know that. Did you know that Iceland has been used at least, including this film, three times to simulate Russia? The first of which was the James Bond film of You to a Kill. I did not know that, but it kind of makes sense because of the way that we, at least as Americans, the way that we stereotype Russia, it seems like Iceland would be a good replacement. So there's your connection between the Fast series and the James Bond series. Also, Tomb Raider shot there. Fast fact, Helen Mirren, she's a fan. In fact, on the Graham Norton show, after Fast 7, after Furious 7, she said she'd love to be in the franchise. Dreams do come true, guys. And then finally, Fast and Furious is becoming quickly known as the home for displaced Game of Thrones characters. We know that Miss Sandy is a main part of the team, but Tormund Giantsbane shows up as one of the goons for Cypher. Connor Rhodes. And it's hilarious that I can remember his name, even though he has like maybe four lines in this movie and gets killed at the end, but I cannot remember Eastwood's character's name. He will always be Tormund Giantsbane in my heart. Tessa who is the displaced, non-Stark, non-Targaryen Game of Thrones actor that you would like to see pop up in a future Fast and Furious? Natalie Dormer. I think Natalie Dormer should be in the Fast and Furious franchise. You hear that, Universal Pictures? You hear that, Justin Lin? You hear that, Vin Diesel? Bring on good old side shave, Natalie Dormer. Furious stats. This film. Surprise, surprise, had a bigger budget than the one that came before it at $250 million. Opening weekend domestic made nearly 99 mil. But I know what you're thinking. Could it top Furious 7's box office take of $1.5 billion? The answer is no. $1.2 billion. Top five for the weekend. This movie took the top the, year, the week that it was released. Second two, Boss Baby which I think is actually about Brian Toretto. Number three, Smurfs. Number four, continuing Disney's reign of mediocrity, the live-action Beauty and the Beast, and then finally Going in Style, which I guess is a movie. As far as Corona moments go, I'm beginning to think this whole Fast and Furious Corona thing is just a bit overblown because we've seen eight movies and there's only been nine mentions of Corona. And the one mention of Corona beer in this movie is you see it out of the side of your eye when Budweiser is more prominently placed. And there is also, if my eyes do not deceive me, a Stella Artois viewable in that frame as well. So I, I recently found out, like in the last couple of days, that Corona has never paid a cent to have their products placed in the Fast and Furious movies. They just asked if they could use Corona beer, and Corona said yes, which seems like a no-brainer. So I'm actually kind of curious if they just said, hey, drink whatever you want, 
and Corona has just become part of the series because of the way that Vin Diesel talks about it. Family moments. Moments, once again, where family is mentioned, not brotherhood. You have to say the word at the very beginning. The race girl mentions family before she says go. We have Charlie's on the plane in her first evil villain monologue. We have Shaw referring to the idea of family. We have Letty once again telling us that you do not turn your back on family. We have the second time that Charlize Theron's character evil villain monologues with a gun to Dom's head. We have the third time that Charlize Theron's character evil monologues to Dom, this time holding the baby. We have the fourth time Charlize Theron's character does the bad guy monologue lecturing Dom. We have the fifth time Charlize Theron's character evil monologues about not kidnapping a kid to start a family. That's not what she wanted to do, Dom, you stupid head. We have Mama Shaw referring to family. We have Shaw on the plane referring to family. We have Dom talking about family. And then finally bringing in this plane for a landing, we have Dom giving the family prayer at the end where he mentions family. (gasps) That's a series high of 12 mentions of family for a grand total of 37. Let's see what Hobbs and Shaw can add to that tomorrow. You just reminded me how many times Shirley's thrown monologues in this like she's obsessed with breaking dom's idea of family that and her little white girl braid all she had to do was stroke that little baby's head and say no mr toretto i expect you to die all right guys it's time to scatter join us tomorrow for the final installment of the nine days of fast and furious fast and furious presents Hobbs and Shaw, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout because Jason Statham and The Rock are taking over for Santa this Christmas Eve. Watch along with us. Tweet at us. Email us. Let us know all your Fast and Furious thoughts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog and email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Guys, we are recording the last episode of this tomorrow, but we haven't released a single one of these yet. We are super excited that you guys have been listening, and hopefully we've heard some feedback from you now, by now. It's been really fun to do. Tessa and I have had a great time. If you've enjoyed this, please let us know. You can find Tessa on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can find me on Twitter, Sam underscore Morris 9, and on Letterboxd at Archie Leach 9. Also, Check out our regular weekly episodes of Monkey Off My Backlog, as well as our newest series, Monkey Nights. Our special holiday theme song is Scott Holmes' version of Jingle Bells and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Find the podcast on Spotify, Amazon Podcast, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just remember, a neon orange Lamborghini is camouflage.